When her biggest client became her worst paying client, the pressure mounted and my next guest has to dig deep to survive. Yvonne Wakefield is a lawyer, and in 2011, she started Caveat Legal, the Airbnb for lawyers, as a way to provide affordable legal services to those who couldn't afford the biggest law firms in the world. Ironically, it was an established old school law firm that almost sunk her company by holding back payments, spinning long stories, and manipulating the truth. Yvonne has fought bad clients, burnout, and an archaic establishment, and thrived. My name is Nick Harrell-Ambus, and I don't want to keep you waiting any longer. So remember, it's not over until it's over. Welcome back to the next episode of It's Not Over. I am sitting with Yvonne Wakefield. Yvonne, thank you for joining me. Great pleasure. Lovely to see you again, Nick. Let's dive in and I want you to give me some context on the business we're going to be talking about, anything you think is relevant to, to me. Okay. So Nick, I built Caveat Legal about 10 years ago. I have a history in the legal profession, a history of really enjoying it, but also realizing that it was not exactly in service of many of the people that it was there for. So I decided about 10 years ago to set up a legal services consultancy where we can make former big firm lawyers available to businesses through a virtual platform. So like an Airbnb or an Uber for lawyers, of course, because we've stripped out all of the overhead brick and mortar that's usually associated with legal services, our clients can get access to big firm, big heavy credential lawyers at round about slightly more than half of what they'd pay for them at those firms. So now we have a team of about 50 lawyers covering all the commercial fields of law and it's going magnificently. Yeah, we've had our ups and downs, but for the most part, it's been an amazing journey. That's incredible. And tell me a little bit about the revenue model. How do you make money? So essentially, we have built the platform to house this this service. It's not a wildly tech sexy platform but it works and it's we've kept it as simple as possible to just try and make sure that we keep all the costs down but also that we just stick to what we're trying to do which is provide good legal services so we only do what clients are needing and we don't add on anything else so it's a it's a, it's a very basic platform we've got our clients on the one side and our lawyers on the other side and we connect our lawyers with our clients on a per brief or per secondment basis we add on a 25 percent service fee to our lawyers rates and because there's no fat built into the system everything runs really smoothly clients win because they pay much less for really good quality um, lawyers earn much more than they'd earn if they were still at those big firms and and the whole thing just runs really smoothly I, I love this idea as an entrepreneur. Obviously, lawyers are the bane of my existence and their, their fees. So I haven't actually asked anybody else this question, but why did you start this business? Like what the frustration I imagine that emerged that led to this business? So uh, I have this theory that two types of people go into law. They are either bullies or they are bullied or have been bullied, right? So some people go into law because they want to stick to hit people with, and I'm sure a couple of names or faces will come to your mind when I say that. But actually many lawyers go into law because they really want to be able to help people. And I sort of fall on that side of, of the spectrum, having dealt with bullying for a lot of my life. But I, I got into law because I, I feel very strongly about justice. I feel very strongly about fairness and I, I want to be able to help people to help themselves to access the kind of institutions and the, the processes that are out there for them. So why did you choose to not become a wealthy big law lawyer 
and go the difficult, complicated, hard route of starting a business? When I kind of got into the profession, I really loved it. But I realized quite quickly that the people who were there were actually no longer that interested in helping people. And all of a sudden, you're working in a big law firm and you're having to meet these fee targets and your bosses are are telling you that they'll only keep you if you bill a certain number of hours every month and if you bring in a certain amount of money every month. And that started to strike me as having a very fundamental conflict of interest because you should be trying to solve your client's problems as quickly as possible um, and as cost-effectively as possible, but instead you're incentivized to make mountains out of molehills. So there were a couple of conflicts that I recognized in the profession, and I recognized that and, and some other things that really made legal services just completely exclusive and not that accessible to many. So this was my chance. I kind of left the bar and and had some kids quite early on and then looked at the, the profession from that distance and thought, but this is broken. These business models of the past don't work anymore. You don't actually need buildings to be able to provide good legal services you need an excellent brain and you need email I mean it's really that simple it's not even that you need a huge a huge tech system so I then just saw this gap in the market that if you can put something together where you can retain the quality but strip everything else away it could be something that the market really shows that it wants and and that's what's happened that makes complete sense to me um, there is a quote that comes to mind that uh, your margin is my opportunity and in law and accounting firms, it just feels like that is the massive opportunity for anybody is these massive, insane margins that are built in, like you say, because of the brick and mortar, massive offices, big egos, blah, blah, blah. So you make this sound really simple. Um, like, oh, I had this idea and oh, I just email in a laptop and oh, it was just great. I just started this business. But obviously, because you're on this show, it's not that easy. So give us some context now on this pivotal near business death experience that you've had and what it was like, what was happening and what that story was. People do tell me that it all looks so easy and that I you know, look like I've just pulled it off and it's a typical overnight success. But this thing happened to us and we allowed it to happen to us. That's one of the learnings, right? And I think it's actually not, I mean, it is quite specific to the legal industry, but it's actually not that specific to business. And so I think it will have, have some bearing on, on quite a few people that are listening to it. So yeah, I mean, the background was that the business was growing nicely. This was about five years ago. And one client started to brief us more and more until... His business was one of our biggest clients. So his business was a boutique law firm. He was an elderly gentleman who had done really well in law and was running a, a boutique law firm in Joburg, bringing in huge clients, but um, didn't actually have the expertise to run all of those deals himself. And like we assist a number of law firms, we actually provide specialist lawyers to plug into other law firms as and when they need extra hands on deck or as and when they need specialist skills. So we assisted this law firm in that way. And it's it soon became one of our, say, four biggest clients at the time. And when he started briefing us, he negotiated one of our payment terms. So we had a normal 30 days payment terms as part of our terms and conditions. And he negotiated with us that he would only pay us when he got paid by his clients, which we accepted. He was a very smooth talker and a very personable guy, very complimentary, very flattering. And he was briefing us more and more that it was all looking great. And, and the quality of the work uh, was really nice. Uh, so it, it, it felt and, and looked good. And over time, he then started becoming a bit slow in paying us. And as we started dealing with his accounts person, we realized that their accounts department was really lacking. I mean, some examples were that in some cases, their clients hadn't even been invoiced for work. So of course, they hadn't paid for the work, which is why 
we hadn't been paid. And then conversely, some had paid, but the payments hadn't followed through to us. So all the while, this client was being very flattering of us as a business, very flattering of the lawyer that was working for him. And we were almost lulled into cutting him a little bit more slack over time. And before we knew it, he owed us north of a million rand and we were running out of cash. And of course, those fees were fees that we had already paid VAT on. So we were out of pocket for those fees. And one of our largest client relationships was at risk of going south. So when I think back, I think about the feelings that was around this thing, right? And it just felt really, really gross. I mean, we needed income or we thought we needed income from this client and we allowed ourselves to be strung along by him and taken advantage of by him. And it really, really felt revolting. It became frustrating for me because I like to have a nice clean book and everything's kind of fairly meticulously run on the back end. And it just became this like big black mark on all of our financials. So every month they're reporting, there would be this one issue, this one client. We also felt really disrespected by this client and manipulated by his flattery, which was hard. We, I personally am a person that takes people at face value. And one of, it has a lot of upsides, but one of the downsides is that you you do get taken by surprise when people are not who they who they hold themselves out to. And it also affected our internal good relationships. So we'd be having lovely check-ins with the lawyer that was doing this work. Um, all of a sudden, it was now difficult to have these check-ins because we always had to speak about this one client and, and the situation was getting so much worse. So it got us to this point where we had this huge cash flow crisis at one point and we needed to urgently extend our overdraft, okay? And it was so stressful because when you apply to extend your overdraft kind of urgently, the bank said to you, yes, of course, we'll help you with that. In fact, we've already got a pre-populated uh, form that you can just sign to extend your overdraft. We'll send it through to you. And it comes through and it contains terms that are basically unacceptable, right? I mean, I remember the terms were each of the directors needed to sign unlimited personal surety for, for that facility, but all other debts for now and in the future. I mean, it was just this overarching huge commitments that they were requesting us to make and we were not we were not able to amend those terms so we had to sign on those terms and then we weren't able to amend those terms afterwards for six months so we actually had to set reminders in our diaries to get in touch with the bank six months later to say remember you said we could amend them and then of course they let us amend them but the bank took that opportunity to make sure that we were properly properly tied and and that was it was tough wow there's, there's a lot there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause you. Yeah. That's so interesting on so many levels. So um, I can imagine every business owner, regardless of what business they run, hearing my voice on every episode so far saying the same thing. Cash flow kills businesses. That's it. It doesn't matter what you're selling. It doesn't matter how big you are, whether you're a $150 million business like Howard Mann in one of our previous episodes. If you have no cash flow and you can't play your suppliers, you are technically insolvent. And that is an exceptionally difficult thing to deal with, especially as a lawyer who, who has clients who is dealing with another lawyer who is just not paying. So the question that I have now is how long did this go on for from the beginning to when you actually got paid by this person? And we'll talk about how you got paid just now, but what was the time frame, like the bank and everything? Was it a year, two years? It was, it was, the, the crunch time was shorter than that. It was a few months, let's say four months. The amount, the, the global amount was made up of a number of 
different deals that we'd worked on over a number of months and and some of them had been outstanding for quite some time and some of them were newer so it was and it also wasn't paid off you know in big chunks it was paid off sort of matter by matter which made it also a little bit more complicated yeah, that makes sense in terms of the payment coming in dribs and drabs. Obviously, this person's firm was okay up until a point. So what do you remember what the specific breaking point was where you went, fuck this, this is not going to go well, I need to step in right now. Like, what was that point? So that point was when we had we chased this client to make payment. And there'd been every type of excuse in the book. Somebody had died. Somebody had been on maternity leave. Somebody had COVID. I mean, as if they're the only people who are dealing with those types of things. Somebody had had gone AWOL and just every excuse in the book. But then call saying, we actually can't pay you because we've got this huge payment that we need to make to the receiver. (laughs) And we have to be paying the receiver instead instead of paying you. And that gave us the impression which I think was the correct impression that that this guy was stealing from Peter to pay Paul and that they were actually in big trouble. And that technically, as one of the people that they owed money to, you could put them into bankruptcy. Yes. You could declare business rescue on them, right? Yes, yes. But you see, we also knew, we knew that we could do that or we knew that we could sue them. And obviously we could sue for a lot cheaper than others could sue for. We don't, like as a matter yeah. of principle, because suing suing anybody is just never, ever the solution. But um, mm. we also knew that if we if we sued them, then they would just use that opportunity to delay paying us because they were lawyers and they also know how they could work the system to get more and more time. So so that was really tough. But that was the time when we decided we needed to actually get divorced from this client. And but we made a decision that we were going to get divorced without telling him that we getting divorced. So we thought we're okay. going to slowly stop taking work from him and slowly put him under pressure to pay and then. Once our exposure was right, right down, then we'd say to him, look, we're not prepared to work with you. But that all had to be managed quite carefully because we needed to kind of keep him on the line to pay off as much as he could before before then. Wow. So that's actually quite calculated um, on your behalf and very patient execution. It's something that I... St- I generally struggle with. I am a cut all ties, screw you. I'd rather sink my business than slowly wean you off. So what I want to ask is you you keep saying we in this equation, like we decided we. who was the we helping you with this? Because if I'm on my own, I'm often irrational. My first reaction is irrational. So who was the we guiding you to be <laughs> calm and helping you to not freak out? <laughs> Look, the we was mostly me. I have been divorced before, okay. um, but, but, but it was also career who was our, our kind of operations manager and we of course had a whole lot of support from business coach to CFO to and then of course the lawyer who was working on all of those deals who had had struck up quite a good relationship with this client over time and because the relation because the client was so flattering and so lovely and it it, it made things quite tough because being calculated you have to kind of put up with being massaged right and you have to be like okay this guy's massaging me. I'm going to listen to it, but still stay on the path of um, making sure we recover those mm-hmm. monies before before we tell him that it's over. So, so it 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 was a, it was a team of us, but also we realised that to get the best outcome, we actually had to be more careful than that. And so, one of the things that I've learned in business is that, and in life, is that people tend to behave really, really badly when they're ashamed. So the whole thing was to try and let this guy know that we knew that he he owed us, but not put him into a position where he felt ashamed personally, 
because we thought that if we put him into that position, then he would just, he would get even quieter on us and lie to us more and all of that. So it took a lot of really, really careful handling of him to make sure that we didn't put him into the position where he felt ashamed. Wow. What thought pops into my head is that <clears throat> there is this very fine balance between entrepreneurs getting lulled in by revenue, top line revenue and bottom line profit. And mm -hmm. it's one thing to have all these billings and you being a very conscientious business owner had paid the revenue, the receiver of revenue for all the billings, but not getting paid means that you're not profitable. So there is this lesson in there that it doesn't matter how big your book is. If you're not getting paid and if it's not profitable, then you don't have a business. Exactly. Exactly. And so so now you've got this person who is obviously a very good lawyer and obviously a very good negotiator and obviously a very good talker and it seems a very good salesperson because they are going out and getting all these big deals. Yeah. So you start slowly cutting him out and saying no to work and at no point does he go, okay, there's a problem here. These people aren't going to help me anymore. It's terrible, but we started saying no to work um, we started saying yes on condition that the following payments were paid, were made. And I think that's what makes these things uh, so hard is you start to get forced to behave in a way that isn't really great. I mean, you'd never want to be threatening your client. You never want to be no. taking work on a conditional basis and kind of, it just, it felt very, it, it felt, it just felt yuck. Icky. Yeah. But unfortunately, sometimes the ick is forced upon you. It isn't originated from you. And this is a weird thing, but I think that a lot of entrepreneurs, maybe first time and young entrepreneurs who've never been burned the way you have and the way I have, feel like asking for payment is an icky thing when it isn't. The icky thing is when people don't pay you. The icky thing is when people negotiate payment terms that they know they're gonna screw you on. And I, I'm quite aggressive with this, mostly when it comes to team members who suck and aren't my kind of people, that it's either them or me. Yeah. And in this scenario, when you're asking for payment, it's them or you. And I feel like the ick is something you have to condition out of yourself when yeah. it comes to money. You have delivered a service. You need to pay me for that service yeah. or there's a problem. And that like, is the thing. How, like, you, I mean, this how guy did you was come getting, to terms with this? This guy yeah. was getting probably our best M&A lawyer on all of his matters. There you go. And I mean, he was getting the best level of service possible. He was probably marking up our fees for his clients. So he was earning off that and, and just not, just not keeping his side of the deal. And yeah, it was really, it was really hard. And it was hard to have to say to him, well, we got your instruction, but you know, we're not lifting a pen until, until those other matters are paid for. It's, it's horrible, but we had to do it. And, and actually it actually feels easier now to do that. And now that we've been through this, he, that was the second client we'd actually fired. I really feel like that's a kind of badge of maturity of a, of a company. When you can say to a client, you know what, this, this isn't working out. You've got great business, but best you take it somewhere else. It is, it is such an important thing to be able to do. 100%. And it is something that when you start out, you kind of don't realize that all the work is not the same as the right work. All the clients are not the same as the right clients. All the money is not made the same. There yeah. is good income and there is bad income. Absolutely. There is expensive income and there is cheap income. And you only kind of learn this when you get screwed over by someone. And if you survive, like fortunately you have, you then get to entrench that into the way you do business. Yeah. Um, 
I want to jump back to, uh, you mentioned some internal difficulty that this brought about, which is completely expected, that now you've got lawyers working for a client who's not paying them, the business is under pressure, so they feel like, why should I work for this person? How did you manage, and I, I, you didn't mention, but you're the CEO of this company and you're the leader, but how did you manage that kind of internal difficulty and what did that look like at the time? Hmm. Look, thankfully, the, the main lawyer that was involved, as I said, was, is, is probably our best deal lawyer. And he is, one of the reasons why he's the best is that he's got the most incredible EQ levels and he's very tuned in to things. So between the two of us, we could communicate openly and directly about what was happening, even to the point where we could communicate about how it was affecting our working relationship and how every call that we needed to have to discuss other things was somehow tainted by this kind of elephant in the room that we were still, you know, battling. It also, we also learned some things about ourselves, right? I mean, we learned for him that he was possibly a little bit more susceptible than some people to being manipulated. And that was a really important thing for him to learn. And and, and just the, the process of us going through together and setting boundaries with this client, I think have really, in the long term, set us up for, for, for real kind of progress on that front. Because you do get people out there who just take advantage of other people and they get there by, by manipulation. So that was super interesting. The other costs, I mean, time. If I think about the number of hours we spent discussing this, getting reconciliations from our accounts team, sending it to their accounts team. Like just the time, it just it cost us a huge amount of time. Yeah, and then of course, you've, you've paid the VAT, you're out of pocket financially, you're also then paying interest on the overdraft, but you're not really recovering. So there were there were a lot of costs involved, but I feel like we've we've managed to come through it and, and now, now we can almost identify those types before we even get you know, very far with them, which is great. A couple of things there. The, the first is closer to the one of the last things you just said, that collateral damage that entrepreneurs often don't acknowledge is very vital to making a decision. So it isn't just about, oh, I did this work and now I got paid or, oh, I did this work, I didn't get paid. It's also... I did this work and I'm still spending four hours after doing the work, talking about the work, talking about the client, negotiating extra payment terms, all the peripheral, the collateral damage from a bad seed, whether that's internal, a bad resource, or external, a bad client. It isn't about, especially in the law firm world where you charge by the hour, if you spend an hour talking about work you did, that's two hours. And now you've not earned for the one hour you've just been talking about this asshole. So there is that collateral damage to take into account that it's you plus another partner, plus your finance person, plus your ops person in a meeting for four hours. That's 16 hours of time. Like there is more to this decision than just the income. And I think that that's an important observation that you make. And then the second thing is you mentioned that this lawyer was slightly easier. You realized that they were easier manipulated than potentially others. Can you uh, highlight how you figured that out or what that means? Because hopefully we can learn from yeah, that. Yeah, so that was interesting. And, and I think he, 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 is, he is so tuned in, the lawyer, that he, he actually realized at first. And then when he, when he mentioned it to me, I could then see it more clearly. And then it was interesting because then it meant once we'd recognized that there was this tendency or this vulnerability on his part to be kind of flattered and wooed and sent more work and, oh, he'll help and he'll do the work and he really wants to help with this urgent thing. Once we had an understanding of his tendency to want to help and the fact that he could be manipulated in getting there, it really helped us because it meant that every time a, a request with new work came in, then I dealt with it. 
and I saw things much more clearly and I said, you know, right, I'm just looking at the schedule here. looks like these things are still outstanding. When you send us the proof of payment, he'll get onto the work straight away. So I could actually take over that um, because at that point he wasn't able to kind of be the person to say no. So that's how we kind of managed it. Amazing. That's really good EQ and self-awareness on his behalf and really good leadership on yours to say, that's fine. That's not your skill set. I'll handle that going forward and then you'll be a better lawyer. Like you yeah. can't do everything all the time. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Then before we go on to the mental health personal um, side of this, I'm interested in you very briefly mentioned that your business coach was helping you like through this issue. Was the business coach somebody you'd hired prior to that and they were working with you throughout? Is it just a business coach for you as Yvonne, the CEO, or did this person work throughout your business? It was just a business coach for me as the CEO, and we had been working together for quite some time. So it was, you know, kind of a longstanding relationship. And on most of the agendas that we had for the calls that we had between us, there was a line item for this one client. Yeah, that was, that's. And why did you get a business coach to begin with? We were fortunate enough to be part of a scaling program run in South Africa by 10XE entrepreneurs. And one of the kind of ancillary parts of that program was access to a business coach for, I think it was a year. And then we kept him on for um, quite a while after that. And it was, it's, I, I'm kind of dubious around coaches because it feels a lot of the time that anyone can call themselves a coach. There's almost like a, an accreditation issue. I think life coaches are more problematic than uh -huh. business coaches. <laughs> okay. But the reality is as an entrepreneur, you are just so alone all the time, particularly in a, in a business like like caveat, where I don't need to be the only person in control, but as it happens, I'm 100% shareholder. And because we've set it up in such a way that all the lawyers are contractors and even our finance team and our marketing team are contractors, I am literally the only person running the business. And that I don't think is good and I don't think it's healthy. And so we've had, Kareen was in the business for quite a few years. We'll probably replace her at some point. She moved overseas. But you know, there, there are real downsides to running a business on your own and not having the insight of somebody else who knows the business, but is not actually stuck in the business. So I really, really enjoyed that process. And I still call up on him from time to time when I feel like I'm bumping my head on something. Yeah, really interesting point then to go back to this particular client, because there is a lot of identity tied up in being a 100% shareholder, CEO, founder, leading lawyer, blah, blah, blah. And then having this person treat your business this way is actually, and I can speak from experience here, they're treating me this way because I don't believe in work-life balance and separation. I am my work. My work is me. I work all the time because I love what I do. And therefore, you, if you're trying to fuck me, it's me and my business and those things hurt. So how did you feel? Like, how did you as Yvonne, the human identifying as caveat, how did you feel about this? You know, it's so interesting. I felt the way you've described, but actually almost a little bit worse because at one point it became clear to me that he, that he thought that I was the secretary of the person who was in charge. <laughs> because oh, no, come on. You know, he thought I was the accounts I don't know. He, he thought I was the PA or somebody, which is fine. I mean, it's, it was actually quite funny when we realized it. But yeah, look, I mean, I think from having been going to therapy for myself for so many years, I have managed over time to kind of work out who I am separately of my station in life and my family and my work and my 
relationship status and all of those things. So I think I was probably, when this happened, probably less at risk than some entrepreneurs because I'd already done some of that work. But yeah, it hurt like hell when, when you realize that, that somebody's been lying to you, lying to your people that you rely on and that you are close to and that you work with. It's, it's really tough, really, really tough. Yeah, I agree with that. So how close do you think that this entire, let's say, six-month period put your business to the edge? Like, were you inches away from having to fire people, declare bankruptcy? I know that you mentioned you got an overdraft, which in the world of Nick is like the worst possible thing. Per you mentioned personal surety, and I started sweating a little. Those, those things scare me and freak me out. It's kind of the number one advice I've ever gotten, especially when I started opening retail stores, is no matter what leases you sign, don't ever sign personal surety. So now, obviously, this was putting you quite close to the edge because you had to do things like that. So how, how near death was this, actually? Yeah, it definitely did put us close to the edge, but we were extremely conscientious and careful about it. So, for example, the way I've just explained it to you that we we don't hire anybody. We actually only got one person on our payroll, and that's me. Um, the lawyers, finance, marketing, everybody is contracted. So there wasn't that huge payroll kind of uh, threat hanging over our heads every every month. So I think those types of decisions actually set us up much better for these types of crises right at the beginning. But yeah, I mean, finding yourself signing personal surety, finding yourself going into debt, debt for me also is a, is a swear word. I don't like it. I try and stay away from it. As a business, we try and stay away from it. We've pretty much since then, we've, we've kept the facility, but we don't use it. But yeah, I mean, you find yourself really having to bend some of your own preferences to, to make the thing work. It's, it's really tough. What I really am enjoying about listening to your story is this interesting link between your high-level reason for starting this business. Law firms are bloated. They're not helping the people that they need to help. Fees are too expensive. Which is your North Star? Your mission, your vision is to make this kind of legal service accessible to more people. Then when things go bad, that vision actually ties into helping you. Because you don't have overheads, because you don't have bloat, you're able to weather the storm. So I really love the idea that you very carefully thought about the kind of business you wanted to build and that vision and mission stayed steady and actually helped you overcome a near-death business experience. I mean, it's, it's a testament to your foresight and the kind of business you tried to build and successfully did build. So well done. Yeah, thank you, Nick. I mean, that's a really nice point that you make. I hadn't actually thought about it in those terms. I mean, but but I think you're absolutely right. And I think one of the things that's just kind of come through this whole thing is how important it is to understand both personally, but in business, who you are, what you stand for, what your business stands for, who you surround yourself with, who you just keep out, those types of things. And what I've what I've found is that having one bad egg in the system tainted everything during that time and had we allowed him to stay a client wow. and allowed other other similar clients to be, become our clients it would have eventually tainted the whole organization and affected culture morale and, and might have even been our downfall who knows and i think as we've as we've grown up we've really realized that clients when clients values don't um, align with our own business values honesty integrity professionalism it reflects negatively on our business, even though they are just clients. They're not employees. They're not that close to us. They just use our service, but they are associated with us. And there is a kind of a bleed over of values. 
And just having those clients in your stable does affect your business. And and really, I mean, it. I think it applies in life generally. Like we, as we get older, we just have to be more discerning about who we allow into our space, who we allow to associate themselves with us, who we give our energy to and those types of things. So I found it amazing in business. Now we only work with clients that we like. And we work with clients that where our values and perspectives are aligned. So that's been, it's been a really, really, probably the, the biggest lesson from, from the whole thing. The, the difficult thing, unfortunately, for struggling businesses, first-time entrepreneurs or young businesses is that you kind of feel like you have to take on all the income, all the clients, because you need to get this business up and running. When actually your point is so valid and so true all the way at the beginning, from day one, identify who your perfect client is and don't waver from that. Don't move. That's your perfect client. And if you can't find them, either you've identified the wrong client or you're not selling hard enough, but don't expand to take on asshole clients because you're going to have to end up firing them. And it's a rule of thumb that anybody in the service industry knows. The people who negotiate the hardest and pay the least are the worst clients. So you've got to make sure that you've got the boxes checked of who you want to be in your business, clients and team, I suppose. So yeah, very astute. Yeah. And what's been amazing, Nick, is we really thought that our revenues would take a real hit when we stopped working with this client. And we didn't even notice it. The books didn't even budge. We amazing. just carried on growing nicely. That workflow was filled by other work, by better, nicer people, better clients who paid on time. It just, the business has, it's almost kind of just taken off. And it, I don't, I wouldn't say it has taken off because of that, but not only did we not feel the dip of losing that huge client, but the workflows mm. picked up and the revenue stayed stable. And now we know that we can let go of clients who are bad for us and we'll just recover and we'll be fine. Yeah. And it's that collateral damage again, because your mental space isn't allocated to the anxiety of fighting with this person and where the money's coming from and the overdraft and the, the tax man and all those other things you're now putting all your effort into the relevant parts of your business, not the negative parts of your business. So again, it's that collateral damage that one bad egg can do. And whether that's a team member who's a bad egg or a client, you've got to fire those people and move on so that you can build the kind of business you want. Yeah. And, and I think with, with clients that are not completely aligned from a values point of view, often get companies to jump through all types of hoops and slightly change their vision and slightly change their products and those types of mm -hmm. things. And um, what we've learned is when we hold a boundary with a client, even a big, strong client, they actually respect us for it in the long term. In the short term, they get a bit annoyed and they think, who are these guys drawing this line? But in the long term, they respect us more for it. And so it, it, that that is really important for us to remember when we do get a big client who's got a big checkbook and got lots of amazing deal work to do that wants to work with us, but wants to do, it, to do it on their terms, that we actually hold strong and enforce our own terms, which we know we've put into place to make sure that our cash flow is steady and our lawyers are happy. Yeah, 100% agree with all of that. So now to turn and focus on you specifically for the last few minutes of this, at this time, I know what it's like to be the sole founder and to have all the stress and pressure financially on you with your team, with your clients. What was it like at home? Like what you've got kids, you've still got a whole life. I mean, and as far as I understand, you're actually mostly a single parent dealing with kids, life, clients, staff. What was your personal life like? I think 
having had the unfortunate, fortunate situation of getting divorced, let's say six, six years ago, I've almost had to fast track my own personal growth work to survive. And so that work kind of has been, I started with that work a good few years before I got divorced, but it meant that by the time I got divorced and then when this thing happened, that I was already six or seven years into therapy. I was already regularly meditating and doing the kinds of things that I need to do to keep myself sane, walks in the forest twice a week, walk on the promenade once a week. And and so it did definitely affect affect me, but I think because of all the work that I had already been doing, it didn't affect, affect me as badly as, as it could have. And I'm, I'm just so grateful for having had the kind of misfortune of a difficult marriage to get me into those things. But I mean, they've, they've saved, they've saved so many, they've saved me from so many things that have happened post that time, just because I've had both the kind of, the kind of debrief with the therapist, but also the, the insight and the the, the deep work to be able to figure out where I stand in relation to each of these crises and what I can and can't do to affect them and how I can almost be a little bit more detached from the detail because things are actually just going to work out the way they're going to work out. So having that kind of perspective was really, really helpful. Yeah, that's very useful. Listeners are going to get very bored of me talking about this, but there's a couple of themes there that I am very fond of and very familiar with. The one is post-traumatic growth. I'm not sure if you've come across that concept, but yep. you know, for the listeners, the high level is every trauma actually makes you feel like a better version of yourself if you're willing to do the work and learn the lessons. And the second thing has flown out of my head, so I'm not going to tell you what it is. <laughs> what was the second thing? Anyways, okay, so what did you learn... Um, from these months of difficulty that you take with you everywhere you go now? Okay, so I learned to have a much more careful um, and much more nuanced understanding of our cash flows. So since that time, we've had a, an almost daily updated cash flow forecasting system so that we know at any given time if we're going to run out, when we're going to run out, when we need to. And we've, so we've, we've put the system in place and then we've also identified certain markers that would be red flags that, would, that we'd pick up early enough to make little changes and to, to the operations. So that was, that was a huge thing. Having a really nuanced and deep understanding of the finances and the, and the triggers and the red flags. The second was just building up a reserve and making sure that we didn't need to resort to debt again. The third was getting a clearer handle on which of our standard terms and conditions we are willing to negotiate on and which ones we aren't. And then just to stick with people we like and trust. Simple as that. All really impressive lessons and hard fought. And I suppose this is the point of everything can't be easy all the time. The point of difficulty is that you learn and evolve your business. If everything is plain sailing and every client you ever want is amazing, then your business kind of doesn't stress test itself. So the lessons you've shown actually illustrate that the shitty times lead to good outcomes. And that's a really key thing. So before we sign off, please tell my listeners and viewers where they can find you, where they can hire you, where they can follow you on social media and anything else you'd like to say. Oh, bless you. Thanks, Nick. Yeah, you can find us at uh, www.caveatlegal.com. We have 
panel of lawyers with South African, UK and US qualifications um, dotted all over the place. Or you can find us on any of your favorite social media channels. We're on all of them. Please reach out to us if you have any questions about the way we work. It'll be lovely to meet you. Awesome. Yvonne, I'm so happy to hear that for you and Caveat, it's not over. It's not over.